Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. If you're wondering why I'm up here this morning, Michael Crocker, our lead pastor, and Ryan Jacobson, our missions pastor, um, are at school again. They go to school in Seattle throughout the year a couple of times um, uh, to train in becoming better parish pastors, um, connecting to the local community. And they have been there all week, and they're coming home today. So we uh, continue to pray for their safe return, and Michael and Ryan will join us next week. Um, This morning, we're going to continue our journey into discipleship and exploring what it means to be a disciple. And I'm going to start off with a phrase you've probably heard before this morning. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all recognize this, right? It comes from the Declaration of Independence. Uh, The full phrase is attributed to Thomas Jefferson, and it said this. It said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when I think this phrase through, there's parts of it that I get, but there's parts of it that I don't get. I'm not sure that I understand everything in here the way Thomas Jefferson and his co-writers wanted me to understand it. Um, Some of it I do. You know, life and liberty, that's simple enough. I get that. Life means to be alive. Liberty means, it's not a word that we normally use anymore, liberty, but it means freedom. It means to be free from oppression, to act in the ways that we want without restriction. Then I get to that third phrase, the pursuit of happiness. That just seems weird because I get tripped up there. I think of the pursuit of happiness and I think about me going out there and finding the things that bring me pleasure, that make me happy. It's like Thomas Jefferson is telling me, to get out there that I have an unalienable right given to me by God to pursue sports center, basketball, and barbecue. And that just seems a little weird. Like, why would he put that in there? That's, that can't be what he was trying to tell me. Um, but when I think about happiness, I think about what brings me pleasure, what brings me joy, what do I find exhilarating. Um, but I'm not sure that's what Jefferson was wanting me to think about. Is that what it means? Is the pursuit of happiness supposed to be me spending my life, my liberty, going after those things that bring me pleasure? And when I think about Jesus, I don't think of him as unhappy, but I also don't think about him like hopping around the Galilee from one thing that makes him happy to the next. It's not like he's like, oh, hey, let's go get ice cream today. I mean, it just, he was not about that, but I don't think of him as unhappy. So it makes me think I'm not understanding happiness the right way. And this is kind of confirmed by the definition of happiness. It's this word. This is what happiness means. It means contentment. Now, that one really takes the fun out of the word for me. I think about being content. I don't think about the same things. I don't think, you know, this is going to be fun. I'm going to go out there and get the things that I want. I think I'm going to go out there and just be okay. I'm going to, eh, I'm fine. You know that Thomas Jefferson is telling me, you have the unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of things you can deal with. It just doesn't have the same zest. It doesn't have the same pop. I don't, I'm not that interested, which makes me think, okay, maybe I don't understand contentment. Maybe I'm missing what the point of that word is. Is the pursuit of contentment really what we're supposed to be after? Is that what Jefferson meant? As we continue this morning to push in to the exploration of what it means to be a disciple, we're going to hear from Paul. 
And you're going to hear that Paul thought contentment was very important. That Paul thought contentment was something that a disciple should pursue. So listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love. From the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord all day, every day. I never tire of saying it. Rejoice. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. The Lord is ever present with us. Don't be anxious about things. Instead, pray. Pray about everything. God longs to hear your requests, so talk to God about your needs and be thankful for what has come. Before you know it, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will come to you and stand watch over your hearts and minds in Jesus. He will displace worry at the center of your life. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Here's an interesting little fact about the scripture that we just read. It contains the most underlined passage of scripture on all Kindle versions of the Bible. According to data released by Amazon, the two verses that more people underline in their e-Bibles than any other are verses 6 and 7 of the passage that we just read. These two right here. Do not be anxious. Pray about everything. And the peace that passes all understanding will come to you. I find that fascinating. Of all the scripture in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, everything, these are the lines that people underline more than any other. Why is that? I have a guess. I have a guess that tells me it's because people think that there's some truth or some wisdom in these verses about the reality of anxiety and worry in our life. And that we live lives that are riddled with anxiety and worry. And so this catches our attention. Strangely enough, I think in this passage, Paul is actually advising his friends about how to pursue happiness. About how to pursue contentment. I hear these words from Paul and I begin to think that Paul understood anxiety and worry to be the opposite of contentment and happiness. I think Paul is saying life, liberty, and the removal of anxiety and worry when he said this. And actually, I think he was reversing it a little bit. I think Paul seems to be saying, if we remove anxiety and worry from our lives and find contentment, then we will be free and have liberty. And then we can be fully alive. So he's taking Jefferson and spinning it, although he was first in time, so maybe Jefferson took him and spun him. Who knows? We have a first century Jew informing an 18th century American. It's very fascinating to me. So can we live a life without anxiety and worry? Can you imagine your life being free from anxiety and worry? Paul can. Paul says that he has learned to be content in whatever circumstances and that he's taking deliberate steps to move away from anxiety and worry. If you know much about Paul, you're going to know where these letters were written. But when I hear this, I think, I need to know more. I need to know more about what's going on here. Why is Paul saying the things that he's saying? Who's he saying it to? 
Where is Paul when he writes this? And if you know much about Paul, you know that there's a good chance any time he wrote a letter that he was probably where? Anybody? In prison. Absolutely. Paul spent a good chunk of his ministry in prison. And he was absolutely in prison when, we wrote, when he wrote this letter to the Philippians. There's a little bit of debate on whether or not he was in a prison in Rome or in a prison in Ephesus. But everybody agrees that when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi, he was in prison. And what does that mean? You're seeing some pictures of this. It means a couple of things. It means he was probably chained to a Roman soldier all the time. 24 hours a day. Anywhere that soldier needed to go, Paul had to go with him. Paul wanted a moment alone. Didn't happen. Chained to a Roman soldier who had permission to kill him at any moment. He's under the threat of the death penalty. He's in prison. His liberty is gone. He has none. His life is under threat. If you ask me, this is a time when I would be anxious. Can you see yourself in Paul's position? Can you see yourself chained to a Roman soldier under the death penalty, subject to death at any moment? You have no freedom. What do you decide to do? Are you anxious or do you say, hey, this is a good time for me to knock out a letter to the Philippians? (laughs) Paul should be anxious, but he's not. And what's weird about that is Paul should be experiencing what I would call acute anxiety. Acute anxiety is that anxiety that we feel when there's imminent danger or threat. It's good. It keeps us alive like we see a kid playing in the street and we know go get the kid out of the street. That's good anxiety. But as soon as the kid's out of the street, the anxiety goes away. Conversely, Paul gets this letter that tells him that the church at Philippi is arguing, that they're squabbling, they're having church disagreements, which is very important, as you know. They're not having chronic anxiety. I mean, acute anxiety. They're having chronic anxiety. It's the kind of anxiety that never goes away. It just stays there. They're having these arguments. And you've got to remember that word doesn't travel fast in these days. So however long they'd been arguing, it had become a big enough deal for a long enough time for somebody to write it down, put it on a donkey, and send it to wherever Paul was in the world. And it gets to him. So this was a pretty serious church problem. I bring that up because I think we get this interesting contrast between Paul, who should be feeling acute anxiety because his life is in danger and his freedom is gone, and this church at Philippi that's experiencing chronic anxiety because they can't get along about church stuff. And instead of Paul engaging anxiety, he says, this is a time for me to write a letter to these people about how to be free from that. Now, I want to knock out a couple of disclaimers here. It's important to know that Paul is not dismissing anxiety as not real. Paul understands that anxiety and worry, these are very real things. And that chronic anxiety can have an impact on us. The stress from chronic anxiety and worrying can be crippling. It can tear our lives apart. In fact, the word that Paul uses here, the Greek word that we translate as anxious, it literally means to be torn apart. Our hopes pull us in one direction and our fears pull us in another, and we stand in the middle and we get torn apart. And if that's not enough of a word picture for you, 
the English word for worry, the root word for English that means worry, also means to strangle. I don't know about you, but I've certainly had times in my life when the worry and anxiety in my life made me feel like I couldn't breathe. I get that. Paul doesn't dismiss anxiety and worry as though they're not real. Anxiety and worry are very real. They have a real impact on us, and not just in our minds. They have physical consequences. Headaches, neck and back pain, ulcers, digestive problems, strokes, heart attacks. We experience anxiety in very real ways. It's also important to recognize that Paul differentiates between anxiety and worry and care. Paul says it's okay to care. Paul cares deeply for the church at Philippi. But there's a difference between caring about something, about being invested in it, about feeling it in your bones, and then worrying and having anxiety over it. So what's the difference? How is it that Paul can so deeply care for the Philippians as to look past his present life-threatening circumstances to reach out to them in their chronic anxiety? What is his secret? Well, he tells us what his secret is. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord all day, every day. I never tire of saying it. Rejoice. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. The Lord is ever-present with us. Don't be anxious about things. Instead, pray. Pray about everything. God longs to hear your requests, so talk to God about your needs and be thankful for what has come. These are some very specific instructions. And if I'm honest, I recognize that these instructions stand in direct opposition to my normal behavior when I'm suffering from anxiety and worry. When anxiety and worry are in my life, you can bet that my default posture is one of judgment. What I mean when I say judgment is assigning wrong meaning. And I do this all the time. I walk around and I size up every situation and every person. I make a judgment of what's going on or how a person is or what needs to be done. I am a meaning-making machine. I judge and assign meaning to every person, action, and situation and circumstance. And if I do that, you can bet that the next thing I'm going to do, if they're not going the way that I think they should go, is I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to have fear. I start to worry that things aren't going to go the way I want them to go. I become anxious that a person will not act or think the way that I want them to act or think. And I become afraid of an undesirable outcome. And once I'm afraid, it's a really quick step for me to control. If I'm afraid, I will seek control. Once fear and anxiety and worry and stress have popped up in my life, I will begin to take steps to make them go away. I'll try to control or manipulate the situation or the person to make the outcome the way that I want it. I want control. And if I don't have it, I will do some pretty bad stuff to seize it. This is what Paul's trying to tell his friends at the church at Philippi, that anxiety comes from believing the lie that you can control something other than yourself. We can't. We cannot control anything other than ourselves. So we have judgment or assigning wrong meaning 
that leads to fear, anxiety, and worry, that leads to control. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever had an experience like this, but sometimes when I'm in my car and I need to get someplace, I'll talk to Siri about it, and we'll decide where we're going and how we're going to get there. And we'll have a plan, and we agree upon it, and we start on our journey. Inevitably, from time to time, I make a wrong turn, or I don't go away in which Siri has planned for. And as soon as I do, I can sense her judgment. She says, rerouting. She has sized up the situation, and she's assigned meeting, and I can hear the implied idiot when she says, rerouting. I can also hear the fear in her voice when she says rerouting because she's afraid that my, about my mistake and she's anxious that we're going to get lost. She says rerouting because you have left the path and now it's up for me to figure out a new way to get us to our destination. I gave you a perfectly good plan, but no, you went a different way. I hear all of that. And then, of course, I hear her implied control. I've left the path that Siri would have me on. And she's trying to get me back on the path now. She says, rerouting, slow down, pull over, give me a second to look at the map and figure out where we need to turn to get back on the original path. I hear all of that in the word rerouting. Siri is singularly focused on an outcome, getting me to my destination. She will not rest until she can GPS locate me where I should be and say, arrived. Now, You want to know a secret about Siri? She's not always right. Sometimes Siri has her maps wrong, and she doesn't know what she thinks she knows. Sometimes Siri can't see traffic or construction that I can see, and she doesn't know why I have deviated from the path. Her perspective is limited. As much fun as it is for me to stand up here and roll Siri under the bus, I have to confess that I do this same thing. I treat other people the way I imagine Siri is treating me. When someone leaves the path that I want them to be on, I get anxious. I get worried, hurt, or offended. I think, that's not right. That's not what we agreed upon. I need to reroute you. I want this circumstance or situation to change or end differently than it currently is. I want you to act differently than you are. I want you to think differently than you do. Rerouting. Controlling. But I can't, because just like me, you have unalienable rights given to you by God to be free and fully alive. And I can't use my freedom to limit yours. I cannot control outcomes. I'm tempted to believe that I can, and in the process I can engage all manner of anxiety and worry and stress and manipulation, but it won't work. It won't change you. And it will imprison me. As Danny Silk wrote, we were made to have our needs met through relationships with people we do not control. Paul seems to be saying that. He seems to be saying that we have to surrender outcomes. That we must focus on and take purposeful steps over the parts of our lives we actually control. And recognize and release those things that we do not control. Dallas Willard said it this way. He said we have the freedom to choose, to behave, or take any action we want. But we do not have the freedom to choose the consequences of the actions we take or the outcomes of our behavior. So how do we surrender outcomes? How do we break the cycle? 
Paul says instead of judging, that we need to rejoice. Hopefully this line will change. There we go. Paul says instead of judging, we need to rejoice. He says it this way. Rejoice in the Lord all day, every day. I never tire of saying it. Rejoice. Rejoicing is about being in right relationship with God. It's about knowing who God is and who God says I am. If I rejoice and stay in relationship with the Father, then I get to live into my identity as a son or a daughter. I can hear that I'm loved and I'm safe and I'm treasured and I'm called. Rejoicing brings us into right relationship with the Father, but it also brings us into right relationship with each other. It connects us to the idea that not only am I loved, safe, called, and treasured, so are you. And am I treating you that way? Paul says it like this. Make it clear, as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. Rejoice. Paul says instead of fear, anxiety, and worry, we need to pray. He says don't be anxious about things. Instead, pray. Pray about everything. God longs to hear your requests, so talk to God about your needs. In our relationship with a loving God, we are safe and free to tell God what we need, to ask God for help in situations and relationships, to confess what we are tempted to worry about and why, to unload the burdens that we are carrying. In that conversation with God, we receive perspective. We recognize and remember that anxiety and worry are lies that we believe about what we can control. We're given a glimpse of God's viewpoint how God sees our circumstances or situation, and how God sees the other people in our lives. And Paul says, instead of control, that we should be thankful. Give thanks. He says, thank the Lord for what has come. Recognize the gifts you have already received and thank God for them. Getting present to the specific blessings God has already given us and is giving us not only brings perspective, it brings context. It reminds us that we're not unloved and we never have been. We're not in jeopardy and we never have been. It confronts us with the truth of just how treasured we really are. It, it reminds us that the God of outcomes is still on the job, still on the throne, always has been, is now, and always will be. And that God is for us. So we have opposing worldviews here. Judgment, fear, and control. Or rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Judgment, fear, and control, these eliminate trust in God. They lead to anxiety and worry. They lead to discontentment. They do not lead to the pursuit of happiness. Or... Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Paul says this leads to a peace that passes all understanding. A shalom that the text says will stand guard over your heart and mind. A happiness that surpasses every device or method we could come, with, come up with on our own. A contentment in our emotions and thoughts that allow us to trust in our good and loving Father. To be content no matter what the outcome so that we may be free and alive. 
Paul says that these steps allow the pursuit of happiness that yields liberty and life. One way tries to arrange life. One way seeks to receive it. One way tries to manipulate the perfect outcome. And one way is thankful for imperfect gifts. One way focuses on what you don't have. And one way recognizes what you've already been given. One way yields to the acuteness of facts. And one way surrenders to the fullness of truth. One way creates its own path. And one way follows and trusts. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering who you can follow and trust on such a journey, I want to introduce you to some people who are just like you and me. For the last two years, God has been using faith walking here in Alamo Heights to create a community of disciples of Jesus who are being personally transformed and becoming catalysts, mobilizing Christians to become the functioning body of Christ in their neighborhoods, workplaces, and third places. To serve the poor, the marginalized, and those in need. To work for the common good. And to restore individuals, social systems, communities, and nations to God's design. I promise you, I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want you to be seen. If you are in any part of a faith walking course, or you have completed any part of a faith walking course, will you please stand up? Come on. These are people who have taken and are taking purposeful steps to replace judgment with rejoicing, anxiety with prayer, and control with thanksgiving. You know these people. You recognize them. Go talk to them. Ask them questions. Ask them how they are pursuing happiness and contentment and freedom. Ask them what it means to them to live a life that is fully alive and fully free. Y'all can sit down. Jefferson called life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness unalienable rights bestowed upon us by the Creator. If we believe that, if we really believe that we're called to pursue contentment, live freely, and be fully alive, then let's do something about it. Let's pray together.